Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 42. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Bill Harris. Dr. Harris is an internationally recognized expert in the science of omega-3 fatty acids, and in particular, their effects on cardiovascular disease and inflammation. His education brought him to the University of Minnesota, where he received his PhD in human nutrition. He went on to do a postdoctoral fellowship in clinical nutrition and lipid metabolism under the tutelage of Dr. Bill Connor at Oregon Health Sciences University. He is currently a professor in the Department of Medicine in the Sanford School of Medicine at the University of South Dakota, as well as the president and CEO of the organization OmegaQuant. Dr. Harris's interest in omega-3 fatty acids began with his postdoctoral work when he published his first study on the effects of salmon oil on serum lipids in humans back in 1980. Since then, he has been the recipient of five NIH grants for multiple studies looking at the effects of omega-3 fatty acids, specifically EPA, eicosapentaenoic acid, and DHA, tocosaenoic acid, on human health. He has more than 300 publications relating to omega-3 fatty acids in medical literature. He was the author of American Heart Association Scientific Statements on Fatty Acids, including 2002 entitled Fish Consumption, Fish Oil, Omega-3 Fatty Acids and Cardiovascular Disease, and a follow-up article called Omega-6 Fatty Acids and the Risk for Cardiovascular Disease in 2009. These articles were both published in the highly rated journal Circulation. I found his work to be compelling in the effect that we need to really take a hard look at this science at a much earlier age. We are seeing the world of formulas noted to have added back omega-3 fatty acids that are consistently found in breast milk. So we're starting to see that omega-3 fatty acids are important at every stage of life. And so at this point, it made sense to me to start to have a conversation with one of the leading experts in the world on where and when omega-3 fatty acids play a role in our health, and specifically at our youngest ages. We get into some of the significant details around omega-3 fatty acid consumption, uh, how we are utilizing these fats in our brain or development, heart health, inflammatory pathways, and the like. So with that backdrop, Let's take a tour down the lane of omega-3 fatty acids with Dr. Bill Harris. Well, hello and good day, Dr. Bill Harris. Uh, I know that you're in South Dakota and glad to hear uh, that you had a little snow last night, but uh, real excited to get into the topic of omega-3 fatty acids and just fatty acids in general. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, happy to be here. Love talking about this. Well, we're going to start with a little bit of uh, information just to tee you up on the uh, on the tee box here. So in the British Medical Journal, there was an article that was written recently, uh, a couple of years ago, where they stated omega-3 fatty acids are essential fatty acids with diverse biological effects in human health and disease. Reduced cardiovascular morbidity and mortality is a well-established benefit of their intake. Dietary supplementation may also benefit patients with dyslipidemia, atherosclerosis, hypertension, diabetes mellitus, metabolic syndrome, obesity, inflammatory diseases, neurological and neuropsychiatric disorders, as well as eye diseases. Consumption of omega-3 fatty acids during pregnancy reduces the risk of premature birth and improves intellectual development and focus. So that is sort of a backdrop. You know, this is your 
land of expertise. What do we know? And I want you to define fatty acids for the audience and also go through the different types. And then let's really get into your work, why this matters and why we should care so much now. And I think anthropologically, the things have changed a lot in the last 50 years, even more so maybe in kids in the last 20 years with diet and diet interventions and stuff. So let's, let's start there. Sure. So begin defining terms, fatty acids, right? Right. Yeah, they sound like, I mean, it's one of the worst names there could be, you know, fat and acid. Um, but they are, <laughs> that's what they're called. That's what they have been. Uh, it's, it's pretty innocuous, really. If, if people just uh, imagine a, a bottle of uh, vegetable oil uh, or a bottle or a um, stick of butter, um, they're pretty much uh, looking at fatty acids. Uh, those Two kinds of foods uh, are made almost completely of what we call triglycerides. Uh, triglyceride is simply a, a three-carbon backbone that has three fatty acid chains on it. So like 95% of, of a vegetable oil is fatty acids. It's just fat. Um, and typically we say we use the term fat uh, for a, a product that's solid at room temperature like butter or shortening, something like that. We use the term oil for uh, virtually the same chemical um, uh, type food uh, if, it's, if it's liquid at room temperature. But oil, fats and oils are really, they're fundamentally the same chemical. Uh, it's just the different fatty acids that make up. They're just different. Uh, they're, there's, I guess a fatty acid, if people can picture a simply a chain of carbon atoms, um, linked together, picture a chain, a standard chain, and uh, there are links between each carbon atom. Sometimes they are what we call the single bonds. Sometimes they're called double bonds. Uh, and that makes a difference in how they perform and behave. Um, so we have things we call saturated fatty acids. Saturated fatty acids are the ones that you typically see in, in butter or Crisco. Um, and they, if you look at the links between the chains, they're all single bonds. There's no, there are no double bonds. Uh, then there's unsaturated fatty acids, things that have some double bonds in the chain. And we pretty much break it simply into monounsaturated fatty acids, which would mean one double bond somewhere in the carbon chain. And the classic fatty acid, the, the name of that fatty acid is oleic acid. From where you, people remember oleo. Um, mm -hmm. That's where it came from. Um, olive oil is part of the derivation of oleic acid because it's very rich in that particular fatty acid. We, uh, that's a fatty acid that we can actually make ourselves from sugars, proteins. We can, we can create them. Saturated fats can also be, be made um, inside our body from other foods don't have to eat either one of those. Um, but when we get into the, what we call polyunsaturated fatty acids, not mono, but poly, that's two or more double bonds per fatty acid chain. And now we're getting into what we call essential fatty acids, meaning much, much like vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin D, these are essential in our diet because they have essential roles, but we can't make them. Uh, so we have to eat them. And right. when we get into the polyunsaturated group, there's two families, fundamentally. We call the omega-6 and the omega-3 family. And 
they are designated omega-6 and omega-3 for a reason, of course. Um, and the reason is, if you think about this chain of carbon atoms, it's got two ends. One end we call the alpha end, the beginning, and the other end we call the omega end, from the Greek alphabet, alpha and omega, beginning. Right. Um, and so regardless of how many carbons are in that chain, you always have a beginning and an end. So if we look at the omega end of the molecule, the what we would call the end, uh, and count back three positions, that's the first double bond for all the omega minus three fatty acids. And for the omega-6 family, it's the same thing. So if you go, go to the omega carbon, you count back six double bonds, the first double bond. And all the omega-6 fatty acids have that sort of last name. Uh, all the omega-3s have that, but they vary on the toward the alpha end, but toward the omega end, they're the same. So that's the general classification of fatty acids, I think. Right. And that's perfect because that's what people need to know. They just read these labels and says, oh, rich in omega-3 fats, rich in omega-6 fats. They have no real idea of what that is. But in an essential you know, way of saying it is what you you break it down simply. We have different forms of fats. They come in solid as, at, at room temperature, and that would be more of the saturated fat, the coconut oils, the butters, the lards. And then when they get into the oil phase or they're liquid at room temperature, we start to talk about these monounsaturated, polyunsaturated. But all of the big work lately has been looking at the polyunsaturated fats. And the reason being is that we're learning, and again, I go back to the anthropology, that historically humans ate a lot more, to my knowledge, omega-3 fatty acids, and there was health benefits derived from that. So let's sort of talk about that. What are the main sources of these fats in the diets and why has something changed that may be leading towards dysfunction in humans? And we can even get into the genetics of how this these fats are broken down and the genes involved and the enzymes. Yeah, so where do we get them? Um, the omega-6 fatty acids we typically get from, uh, in our current diet, from seed oils corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower seed oil. Yeah, basically that's where they come from. That's the richest source. Um, the omega-3 fatty acids typically come from two sources. Of course, there's, it actually gets more complicated. Both the omega-6 and the omega-3 have some subclassifications. They're uh, on the omega-6 side, we have the, the plant omega-3, omega-6 I was talking about, which is called linoleic acid. It's 18 carbons. It's got two double bonds. That is the one that's in seed oils. Uh, the other, probably the most important omega-6 in our body is, is uh, obtained both from diet and from synthesis from the 18 carbon. It's called arachidonic acid. It's a 20 carbon, four double bond molecule. So that only comes from animal foods. That's only made by animal. Plants can't make that. Uh, so we have linoleic and arachidonate on the omega-6 side. And similarly, on the omega-3 side, we have a plant omega-3 called alpha-linolenic acid, 18 carbons, three double bonds. Uh, the standard, uh, most Americans get their uh, linoleic acid from soybean oil. It's in processed foods. Lots of foods have, have a little bit of linoleic acid. Um, the, the classic, very rich sources of linoleic acid would be flaxseed oil, chia seed oil, uh, those two particularly. Uh, black walnuts have a fair amount of linolenic acid. So that's the plant omega-3, which is the cousin of the omega-6 linoleic acid. Linolenic, linoleic, it's complicated. 
the the parallel to the omega-6 arachidonic acid is what we call EPA and DHA, which are fish-derived, fish-based omega-3s. And they're longer chain, 20 or 22 carbons long, and more of the double bonds. You know, instead of three, there's five and six. So there's this, the two subsections. So we get our omega-3s from two sources, but they're not the same kind of stuff. We can either get them from plant oils, which is this alpha-linolenic, and a little bit of that alpha-linolenic acid can be converted in our bodies to EPA and DHA, the fish oil omega-3s. Uh, but it's not very efficient. Um, there's argument as to whether that's enough, uh, whether we really need to eat EPA and DHA, or can we get enough just from ALA? Um, but typically, the way we get our preformed EPA and DHA is from marine sources fish oils, fish, oily fish, uh, salmon, it's called SMASH. If you think about the acronym SMASH, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, yes, sardines and herring. Okay, so, right. you know, those kinds Small of- Small oily fish, right. Oily fish, right. And, and we don't mean deep fat fried. We mean right. oily, but naturally oily. Uh, and of course, so that really is the source. So to the extent that people eat, oily fish, they'll get quite a bit of the, the good omega-3s, the marine omega-3s in their diet. If they don't eat oily fish, uh, either they don't eat fish at all, which is the typical American, or they eat, you know, like fried uh, a McDonald's white, white fish burger or something like that, or shrimp for that matter. It's very low in omega-3. Uh, tilapia, very low in omega-3. Um, if you eat those, you're going to be, you're not going to have the EPA and DHA that you get from like salmon. Um, so those are the sources. <clears throat> what happened, what's happened over the, uh, either the last hundred years, the last thousand years, the last hundred thousand years, you know, <laughs> in right. diets. I mean, there certainly is a theory um, that part of the, well, I guess I should back up and say, one the organ in our body that probably is the richest in omega-3 is the brain and particularly dha one of the two marine omega-3s uh and it's it's critically important for the structure of of the brain the, the arachidonic acid is also about the same amount as the dha in the brain so they're very important uh, that's part of why they're essential is they are needed to build the brain and so the idea is that maybe uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago, people were eating, you, you alluded to more omega-3 than they are now. Um, maybe, uh, it, it's hard to know, they were probably eating a lot less omega-6. Right. In those days, but I'm not sure they were eating. I mean, I, got, I don't know what they were eating. You know, it's a long time ago. Um, it, plus they died at 25, you know, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Well, they didn't have time to get dementia or heart disease or arthritis or any of that other stuff. They they were gone to reproduce and gone. That's kind of the way it worked. Um, so yeah, up until the time that we began to uh, 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 take something like corn and extract the oil and put the oil in a bottle and sell corn oil seed oils, um, we weren't eating that much omega-6. I think the omega-3, it's hard to know exactly how much we were eating with any part, the mixture of plant and fish omega-3. I mean, it's clear that from the beginning of humanity, people have lived by water. Right. And that's where fish live. 
so they've been using fish, uh, whether they're inland or on the seacoast. Uh, you got to have water. Um, and, and that's, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and that, and I think the, the genesis of a lot of your work came from studying uh, the cardiovascular risk in Inuit Eskimos. Is that correct? And so, you know, again, I, I, I tend to try and think of things anthropologically. And if there was a group or groups that had exposure to large volumes of omega-3 fatty acids and had limited disease, that would all of a sudden bring the hypothetical question up that I think you went after for your career. Why would folks have less risk of disease and I know one of your papers that I want to get into is your Nature Communications 2021 piece, All-Cause Mortality, which I think is the most important thing. So let's let's stay on that course when it comes to what we're talking about. So omega-3 fats, fish exposure, Inuit Eskimos, you start going down this path. What did the science start to tell you or what was your hypothetical reality that you started chasing? Well, it, I you mentioned the Inuit Eskimos, the Greenland Eskimos, and that is where the omega-3, the modern omega-3 story started. I mean, although people have been using something like cod liver oil uh, as a medicine for two, three hundred years, at least we have records right. of it. You know, it's been around a long time. It tasted awful, of course, but in any event, um, the modern omega-3 story began in the 1970s. Uh, work with Danish uh, investigators who were intrigued by the fact that um, Greenland Eskimos were eating very high fat, saturated fat, very high cholesterol diets because they didn't eat much plant at all. They, that's all they had to, to eat was uh, sea, seafood. Um, and in the 1950s and 60s, we, you know, saturated fat and cholesterol in the diet were definitely vilified as causes of, of heart disease. So here are these Eskimos eating this terrible diet, high fat, um, high cholesterol. But they had, from what little evidence these investigators from Denmark knew, they had very little risk for um, heart attacks, very low risk. Um, and so they were, that was the puzzle. Well, why, why, why is that? And so these investigators went to Greenland in, in uh, 1970s, <laughs> excuse me, um, studied the food, studied the blood of these Eskimos and found these long chain omega-3, EPA and DHA in the food and in the blood. And that was unusual because it's not there in Denmark. I mean, it's very small amounts, but it's there. <laughs> but it was there in massive amounts in these Eskimos. So they thought, well, what are these fatty acids? What are they doing? And the original hypothesis was that uh, one of the two omega-3s called EPA um, can be can affect uh, blood clotting, can reduce the tendency of the blood to clot. It inhibits what we call platelet function. The platelets stick together when you have a cut. And EPA was very good at inhibiting platelets. It's kind of like taking aspirin, thins yeah. the blood. And so the hypothesis was in the late 70s that the reason the omega-3s are healthy is because for, for heart disease is they keep your blood from clotting. Um, and, and so you don't get a heart attack based on a clot in the heart. Um, and that was that was the idea that was alive at that time. Um, actually, we I began my research in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, we were more interested in the effects of 
fish oils on lipid, uh, cholesterol, and triglyceride levels in the blood. Um, we then became interested in platelet, in, in the platelet biology, the effects on clotting as well, uh, after learning about the Eskimo experience. Um, so, the, I mean, that's kind of where it all started. And then people began to see that uh, these omega-3 fatty acids seem to have a lot of beneficial effects. And they, then again, a whole other side of the story was people realized that the brain uh, was rich in one of these omega-3s and uh, it was critical for development. So it's not only in the heart disease end of life sort of stuff, but also even in human development, uh, the omega-3 seem to be playing an important role. So they're now one of the most researched molecules in medicine. Right. And we know, you know, in the, uh, being a pediatrician, we have seen uh, such an uh, interesting evolution over time. You know, breast milk provides all of these natural uh, minerals, vitamins, as well as fats and, and macronutrients. And children benefit tremendously from that. Well, you have Similac, which is the main formula other than, you know, a couple others. But Similac means similar to lactation. Right. And so you see so, yeah. iteration after iteration after iteration of formula, adding back that which breast milk has. And one of the most recent ones was DHA. You know, they started adding DHA into the formulas based on a lot of this research. And so explain to the, the, the audience, what is DHA doing in the brain and the cell membranes? And why is that so important? Well, that's where it starts to get tough. Um, what does DHA do in membranes? And number one, you're right, it finds its home in membranes. That's where it lives. It doesn't float around free, just just doing stuff. It's it's a part of a membrane, and cell membranes, of course, are are just critically important uh, for the function of the cell. That they determine what what gets in and what gets out, right. and the waste has got to get out. The good, the food's got to get in, and the cells have to sometimes make uh, make different molecules. Like in, during inflammation, they have to make. Uh, produce some some compounds that help the body fight inflammation or fight uh, infection. In any event, membrane is important. DHA is a big part of the membranes of the brain, uh, and it we think it helps make the membrane more fluid, right? Flexible, um, and well, yeah, okay. So what? All right, it's a flexible membrane, big deal. Uh, well, it can be a big deal because there's a the the more well, I'll just say the more optimal, being optimally flexible allows all the um, the signals that come from outside the cell to get in and the waste to get out. It works best if the membrane is is fluid and flexible. Right. And DHA contributes to that. Right. And then now there's this whole new world that I may be jumping around a little bit, but it's just a, it seems like a perfect segue. So now we have this entire new field becoming uh, where they, you know, these pro-resolving lipid mediators, right? And now yep. there's this entire new field where omega-3 fatty acids, DHA and EPA have metabolites now that have function. And this is the next phase that I think the world is gonna have to look at because these lipid mediators, as well as arachidonic acid have function in inflammation. Mm -hmm. And I think inflammation is gonna turn out to be other than the immune system, the biggest key in all disease outcomes. So what do we know in that in that realm, these SPMs? Yeah, well, an SPM is, the, is an acronym for specialized pro-resolving mediators. Okay, well, okay. 
tell me, tell me a molecule in the body that is not specialized. But that's a <laughs> I mean, water, water is very specialized. <laughs> so anyway, that's my own pet peeve. I'll get off that. But they are, are lipid meat. They, these are molecules that are, you start with EPA and DHA and arachidonic acid. That's kind of the, 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 the uh, precursor. Uh, and then we have a variety of enzymes that will make these uh, products from them. And they typically are adding alcohol groups or OH groups or making double bonds or adding uh, oxygen groups and things like that. They're really oxygenated metabolites of fatty acids. And some of them, um, I mean, there's a bewildering array of them that's been discovered, really hundreds of them from <clears throat> all polyunsaturated. Linoleic acid makes these things, arachidonic acid, uh, EPA, DHA, DPA, any polyunsaturated fatty acid seems to be able to be made into some kind of lipid mediator. And they're called pro-resolving mediators because... What they do is once inflammation, of course, we all agree that having an inflammatory response to an infection or a cut uh, is absolutely important. Got to happen. Uh, it doesn't happen, you're dead. Uh, so inflammation per se is a good thing. Right. Uh, inflammation that stays, along, stays around longer than needed is not a good thing. It's persistent, low-grade inflammation that's not there because it's fighting something. It's just it's the system has kind of gone off the rails. And so what these pro-resolving mediators do, and hence the name, is they actively suppress inflammation when its time is done. That's the general idea. And so if you've got EPA and DHA on board in your cell membranes, it's available to be made into these, these lipid mediators that will suppress um, inappropriate inflammation and drive it back to the normal state. So that's kind of, as, as you allude to, this is sort of the new uh, frontier, I guess, of omega-3 fatty acids in terms of understanding their mechanism of action. How do right. they And there are big right. drugs being built based on th this idea that uh, you know, when, once they know the system, how it works, then you can kind of create molecules that will do it better. That's the idea of, of course, pharmaceuticals. Um, but at this point, nutrition you will do it. You eat enough EPA and DHA and your body knows what to make, where, and to um, uh, suppress that inflammation when it gets out of control. Okay, perfect. So when I was in fellowship, Dr. Andrew Weil, who was one of our teachers, would sit there and talk about omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids as a ratio, mm -hmm. as a consumption issue. Right. You alluded to it a little bit in the beginning where it may be that we're just consuming way too much omega-6 fatty acid as our dietary influence, which may be promoting excessive amounts of arachidonic acid, which tends to be a pro-inflammatory uh, mediator. What do we know about the state of the science of this today? Is it truly that we're not getting enough O3, getting too much O6, both? Because um, I know you said soybean oil is the number one way we're getting our O3, but unfortunately with that, you get a lot more O6 in that soybean oil. What's the state of that reality right now? Well, this this is, a, as I'm sure you know, this is controversial. Yeah, um, big time. Yeah. My view is that the problem with our, our omega problem we have is the lack of omega-3. Yep. Simply, it's the lack of omega-3. It's not too much omega-6. I think Walter Willett would agree with you 
I think Walt would do that. Um, and there and there's good evidence for that. It's not just a philosophical point of view. Yes, the omega six and omega three pathways compete. That's true. That's fine. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that omega six fatty acids are bad. Right. Um, and the evidence that I've, uh, of course, we can talk about the evidence for omega three being good. But as your BMJ or the introduction you read of all those conditions that omega threes are beneficial for, kind of, you know, that says it. So let's talk right. about omega six. Why would we think uh, omega six? I, I, I kind of think we need more omega six, not less. Uh, and there's a push toward less omega six based on this same theory you're talking about. Um, I think that's ill conceived. And a couple of the reasons we've I've been involved with a, a large research consortium uh, called the Fatty Acid Outcomes Research Group. Force is the name of it, uh, and it's a group of of researchers all who um, have been working with what we call uh, prospective cohort studies, uh, the classic one being the Framingham study. Uh, but there, and there's Eric study and Mesa and there's Epic and there's, there's many, many of these prospective cohort and a prospective cohort simply mean a cohort is just a group of people. And a prospective cohort, it means you, here's, you're going to assemble a group of people and then you're going to follow them into the future. And so typically what happens is in these studies, uh, a group of uh, two, three, eight, 10,000 people are uh, pulled together by a research group. They're analyzed, they're quest they are questionnaires, they get blood drawn, they get their weight measured, they get their, yeah, everything's marked. And then, then the researchers just wait to see what kind of diseases these people get over time. And then they link it back to well, oh, they're high. this guy was a smoker. No wonder he had a heart attack. And that's kind of how we discovered that smoking was a risk factor. This guy's got high blood pressure. Oh, and he it's the guys who have high blood pressure that get heart attacks. That's why we now link high blood pressure with and high cholesterol. So it's it's prospective observational research like that that's that's discovered many of these risk factors. So we have a group of, of 20 to 30 of these big cohorts all around the world. And they, we all work together on it. And all of us have measured omega-3 levels and omega-6 levels in the blood um, in the patients in these studies. And so we've been able to ask questions like, uh, if, if you look at, at people's omega-6 blood levels at the beginning of the study and then break the you know, it's a distrib distribution, right? There's people have high levels, some people have low levels. If you break them into what we call quintiles, groups of 20%, 20%, 20%. So the lowest omega-3 versus omega-6 versus the highest omega-6. We, we can do that. Then we can look downstream 10, 20 years later and say, well, who's having heart attacks? Who, who Who's developing diabetes? Uh, based on their omega-6 levels, the baseline. And what we find consistently is that the people that have the highest omega-6 levels in these this conglomerate of studies have a lower risk for heart disease. They have a lower risk for diabetes. And now we got a new paper coming out. They have a lower risk for uh, chronic kidney disease. Um, and that to me is speaks volumes. It's It's when you're measuring blood levels of these things and not just asking people how much they eat 
and those you know food frequency questionnaires are are you know, yeah it's, nightmare it's cheap it's, it's a way to do something but it's not now Walt will would not, Walt Willett would not agree with that but I mean he he loves those food frequency questionnaires but we like biomarkers we like blood level yeah. and so when we look at different uh, the, across the range of omega six levels in the blood we see that higher levels are associated with better health outcomes. That to me says you ought to be taking more omega-6 than less. Or, or if you if you think you should remove omega-6s from your diet, you'll obviously have lower blood levels. And that would increase your risk for things like heart disease and diabetes. Now, heart disease and diabetes are not the only diseases in the world. They're big ones, but there's depression. There's, you know, dementia, there's uh, eye diseases, there's kidney disease, lots of other diseases. So we haven't really examined the relationship between omega-6 levels and, say, depression. I mean, incident depression, depression that comes on later in life or dementia. And, and that's a, a fertile field of research. But at this point, I don't, I don't think we need to vilify omega-6 fatty acids. What we need to do is focus like a laser on getting more omega-3 in our diet because they're both good. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and in kids, again, we, uh, we tend to focus heavily on O3 uh, because I don't, to your point, I don't think there's a lack of O6 in our kids. Um, so we are starting at one year of age, giving all kids uh, fish oil. Right. Preferably right. eat, preferably eat fish. But of course, as you know, most of the parents don't eat fish, so they're loath to start feeding their fish, fish to their children. So it's a bit of a struggle. So we use a couple brands, Barleens and Carlsons and Nordic Naturals, to get the fish oil into the kids, and been relatively successful in that reality. Now my question for you, and I, I don't know if you have this answer because I know nutritional studies are so ripe right for not fraud but just uh what's the you right word here just confounding variables yeah. right so uh, my concern with the omega-6 story isn't the fat itself it's what's going along with the fat so when i think about inflammation to your point very well stated the big issue with inflammation is not acute inflammation just like stress in acute state is great for us it's the chronicity of it that drives disease in humans so if the inflammation mm -hmm. doesn't disappear and when i look at the sum total of the metabolic data to date related to diets it's the the, the co conspirators of the fatty acid i think are the problem so it's often processed highly digestible sugars and flours that are going along with that omega-6 fat that I think are probably driving more of the problem. And so do you tend to subscribe to that belief? Is there data in your mind that supports that? I mean, I can't immediately think of data to support it, but I am sympathetic with that view that it's the company that it keeps, that the omega-6 keep, that is the problem. And it's easier for people to focus on the omega-6 part of it but uh, but i mean there's there's no omega-6 in in sugars and 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 uh, uh you know white flour and all that right. kind of stuff that's that's not a part of it but there are you're right there are many foods that are processed that are you know uh rich in calories from uh from sugars and fat but it's not maybe it's not the omega-6 that's having is the problem i mean i i I'm sure you're in the the, the bullseye of, of the problem of childhood obesity, but 
this is, I mean, and I, I'm curious to your opinion, to what extent is it diet? To what extent is it uh, inactivity? So sort of fascinating. I just finished a four-part series with four guests, um, one of which was David Allison, another one was David Katz and Sandra Hassink, all, you know, big researchers in the space. And to yeah. a to a group of them, most of them really would put the biggest issue with childhood obesity on lack of movement coupled to excessive calorie intake. Uh, and which calories was a lot of, you know, discussion you know, whether it was that or this, I think David Katz is very clear in his mind that it is the processed food that's driving most disease, not whole food. It's the the, the food that has been adulterated to uh, take our historical evolutionary taste buds and bathe them in sugar and fat that encourages the consumption. And, and, and then I interviewed Stephen uh, Guillenet, who is a neuroscientist on this, and he would tend to agree that the hijacking of the taste buds by the neuroscience of food has been a big issue. And I think that's where I fall into. I think the, the those two things are the biggest drivers. Are there chemical associations, epigenetics? I'm sure there's variables beyond that. But if we're gonna lay the blame at anything, I honestly, if you want my true opinion, I think the blame lays at the feet of the federal government, 100%, because mm -hmm. we are, through the farm bill, feeding children highly caloric, poor quality food, 66% of their meals every day at school. And I think that's driving the disease problem more than anything. Um, I see in my school district where my town is, kids can have for breakfast apple juice, a, do a, a donut or a muffin, which is chocolate chip based with a sausage biscuit. And then at lunch, they're eating baked ziti with Fritos on top, washed down with another juice. Now, if you look at that, just the straight calories, that's more than they'd need in almost two days. And yeah. they got it in, in one day. And then it's just a matter of what is your host genetics, which will clearly everyone's host genetics right now are mostly towards caloric storage which is a good evolutionary advantage for us, but really bad if that's what you're getting on a day-to-day -day -day basis. So is it the fact that the food is processed or the food is hypercaloric and tasty? And I think it's, I think they're mutually the same because it's the processing that makes them so bloody tasty, right? So when you process the, the bread to be so easy to digest in your mouth, it's that mouthfeel that dry, like, I mean, you think about a Krispy Kreme donut when they put the sign that says hot now, who doesn't see that sign and go, oh, hell yeah, I want to drive in there because as soon as it gets in your mouth, it literally melts into sugar. So I, I don't know if I could tease apart the processing to the actual macro. I think it's this, I think it's a synthesis of both. That's the issue. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's a huge, and it's back to our fat. Yes. It's not an omega-6 problem. The, right. The obesity it, the epidemic is not because of omega-6 fatty acids. Right, completely. And 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 so what which is one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you about this, because I think there's so much misinformation out there. I have people coming in all the time saying stuff to me about, oh, I need to get rid of this omega-6. No, 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 no. It's not the oil that's the problem. It's what it's following. It's what it, it's 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 you know, it's the cards being driven in. So I, I want to shift a little bit because this is another thing I'm promoting big time in my teenagers, and I want to hear your opinion on this. So there's some translational research that's pretty strong, I think, with traumatic brain injury and the need for omega-3 fatty acids. What do we know in the 
human literature, because I at this point I'm I have all of my athletes taking omega threes just because of the whole concussion problem, and I think again the SPMs are probably the main reason it's beneficial in recovery from concussion. What yeah. do you think about that? No, I, I I think it's a fascinating world, and I think it's a very promising world. Um, as you can imagine, it's very hard to do human research in that field. You, with rats, you can drop a weight on their head, right, and you can study it. Um, you can't do that to humans, and so it's been very tough to study. But in principle, it makes a lot of sense, uh, and in animal studies, it's been shown to be beneficial. So it should translate to humans as well. Um, and I completely agree with your your point of view of, of loading up athletes with EPA and DHA. Um, they tend to be low in athletes and, and the military. I and mean, this is another, another huge problem is the military. Um, we did one study looking at the omega-3 levels in the blood of um, uh, men and women who were deployed in Iraq. They had levels of omega-3 lower than almost anybody we'd seen except vegans. Wow. And three and a half percent. So that doesn't mean anything to your audience, but it's 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 very low. Vegans don't eat any animal product, don't eat any EPA and DHA. This is young men and women being fed military rations, uh, again, in Iraq, and they had an omega-3 index of three and a half percent. It's terrible. Um, and I know the military is aware of this. Uh, many people are, and particularly for that concussion issue. I mean, that's one of the huge points of it. Can you uh, reduce the uh, the damage from a head impact if you have high omega-3s on board? And people really talk about really high omega-3. In this context, Barry Sears, I know, has been very involved with that. You know, try to get 10, 20 grams of EPA and DHA in per day in, in post-stroke, post-head <clears throat> uh, trauma, uh, even post spinal cord problem, you know, uh, damage, any of that stuff, get a lot of omega-3 in. And it's it's slowly gain, gaining ground. It's it's not dangerous. Right. Uh, it really should be studied more and more. I want to segue to two pieces there. First, I want to talk about the bleeding risk because there was some mm -hmm. uh, decade and a half people talking about, oh, you got to stop your fish oil before your surgery, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, I don't think that makes any sense to me, but I want to hear your point on that. And then I really want to go back to the metabolism of these two fats, these two fatty acids. So let's start with the first. What do we know about bleeding risk? Yeah. Um, and so by way of background, back to, back to Eskimos, back to Greenland, um, a lot of anecdotal stories about uh, them getting cuts or, or getting a nosebleed and dying, bleeding out from a nosebleed. Uh, and we do knew, we knew that omega-3 fatty acids do make the blood less liable to clot. Uh, but it's not much more than aspirin does. I mean, it's it's not a lot. So yeah, I there they grew up this urban legend that uh, omega three. Well, and I guess I should you know take a little bit of the blame because one of the studies we published when we were giving twenty five grams of EPA and DHA a day. Okay, vastly more than even Eskimos eat. Right. But my boss said, let's give them a lot. Give them you know have them drink salmon oil all day. So that, that was my first introduction. And we gave, and people's had platelet counts and went down. One guy had a really serious drop in platelet counts. We had to take him off. So there's, there's 
it's not irrational to worry about bleeding with a higher omega-3. There is some evidence, but when, when we've looked at the evidence that have come along since in big, big trials of where they've given omega-3 and, and blood thinners, given to warfarin, coumadin, along with omega-3, uh, and they've looked at bleeding, they haven't seen any increased risk for adverse bleeding. Um, the Food and Drug Administration that has approved two or three omega-3 drugs, you know, Loveza, Vasipa. Vasipa. Um, th these, these are given in four gram a day doses, which is pretty big nowadays. Uh, and the FDA said, you know, there's no increased risk for clinically significant bleeding with these. Uh, and papers we've published and other people have published, look at this, it, it's not a bleeding risk, but you're absolutely right. It got into the, it got into the discontinue before surgery list and you can't get it out. Right. And it's stupid because right. Omega, you know, I'm having surgery in three days. We'll stop taking aspirin. Okay. I get that. Stop taking fish oil. It doesn't make any sense because my fish oil levels is are, are not going to go down for a month. Right. After stop. Right. Yeah. So why stop? And then we've actually, one of our studies, we uh, were giving a large dose of fish oil before open heart surgery. Uh, and we were looking to see if, actually, that study was to see if omega-3s would, would reduce the risk for post-operative atrial fibrillation, which was a common side effect of heart surgery. So we gave eight or 10 grams a day for three or four days before surgery. Uh, and we found actually in that study that there was less blood loss in the people that got the omega-3s. They looked at how much was lost at surgery in the few days after. So there's less bleeding with higher omega-3 in that study. So I, I I keep beating this drum, but nobody's listening. Well, maybe you're listening. You heard. No, I'm listening. Trust me, I'm listening. Get it. So yeah, yeah. There's not an increased risk for bleeding. You should not worry about having omega-3s on board when you're going to surgery. Right, right. So let's go to question number two now. And I appreciate the way you stated that. Um, so when you begin the cycle of metabolism of these fats, the omega-3 and the omega-6, there's two major genes, fatty acid dehydrogenase 1 and fatty acid dehydrogenase 2. And the reason I want to sort of focus in on this, because there's some discussion around people having single nucleotide polymorphisms in these genes, SNPs. Are they clinically relevant? Because if let's say you have a heterozygous SNP in FADS2, you theoretically may not metabolize the omega-3 all the way down to EPA and DHA correctly in, in volume. So I think about like an eight-cylinder engine only functions on four cylinders. You'll get to the end result, but it takes you twice as long. Is there validity to that or we just don't know? Um, well, yeah, let me explain a, a little bit more of that. Right. So when you, we do have these enzymes that will take the 18 carbon essential fatty acids, ALA on the omega-3 side, linoleic acid on the omega-6 side, FADS1, FADS2. And they do um, create the longer chain metabolites, EPA for the omega-3s and arachidonate for the omega-6s. And if you have a mutation in one of those genes that produces a enzyme that doesn't work so well, which is to your point, then you may not make as much of the arachidonate or EPA that you should if you didn't have that. And so the question is, is having that mutation uh, clinically relevant or is it kind of a, you can find it in a research study, but 
everyday life, it's irrelevant. Um, I think that's it's probably irrelevant on the omega three side. Um, it's there's more of an impact of having that mutation or those mutations on the omega six side. That is to say, people who have the mutations will have lower levels of arachidonic acid. Yeah, and I would Which, agree with I would agree with that from the fish oil perspective. But how about for a vegan? Well, yeah, vegans, right. That's interesting. I mean, at, at one level, the, the very existence of vegans and the very the, the ability to actually reproduce children in right. vegans argues that you do not need EPA and DHA in your diet because they don't eat it. And yet they obviously live healthy and, and produce. Uh, I mean, there's some question about the risk for dementia and things like that in, in vegans, but um, in a vegan setting, and that's not been studied very much at all, it's it's a, a small number of people that actually are vegan, vegan, <clears throat> no animal right. products, whatever. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, I think the least that you can learn from uh, vegan studies is that linoleic acid, 18, 18 carbon omega-6 and the 18 carbon omega-3 alpha linolenic is all you need to live and reproduce. You do not need to eat arachidonic. You do not need to eat EPA and DHA. I mean, that's you just can't deny that. It's it's right there in front of you. And in, entire cultures are vegan and they do it. Um, are they living as healthy as they could? Yeah, hard to say. I mean, it's a very complicated diet. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's a very, very different diet. It's not just a fatty acid difference. There's there's many other differences. So to the extent that there are health benefits with veganism or vegetarianism, it's hard to pin them on one component of that diet. Um, right. But I think it would be to your point that mutations in these particular genes um, that affect the synthesis of arachidonic acid and EPA uh, could be important uh, in vegans. And so you, you've got a vegan who's got a particular mutation and you know about it. You might say, well, you need to take, you really should take a vegan omega-3 product, which you can get. They're made from algae and right. you can take, there are vegan omega-3, there are vegan arachidonic you can make. Um, so that would make some sense uh, how, you know, whether it would change a disease outcome in the long run. Nobody's ever looked at that. Right. And on this same line of thinking in a, in from a different macro perspective, does, since you stated the, the, the algae animals consuming grass at volume. So ruminants versus yeah. the ruminants who eat corn, right. Or mm -hmm. a starchy based human derived source of nutrients. Is there a, a significant omega-3 difference in the animal product at consumption? Yeah, so there are several studies looking at grass-fed beef fatty acid profiles versus corn and hay silage-fed beef. Yeah, and is there a difference in a significant difference in omega-3 levels? Yes, in the scientific sense, statistically significant. But when you look at the actual amount of omega-3 that's in that meat, in the grass-fed, uh, what you find is it might go from, you know, 10 milligrams per serving to 
12 milligrams per serving, but is statistically significant. Is it yeah. nutritionally significant? Unlikely. Not at all. Um, what what you see in the grass-fed beef is a much like a halving of the amount of oleic acid, 18-1. There's a lot less fat per serving, but and the omega-3s are a little bit higher, but it's not, it is in no way is it a substitute for salmon. Yeah. Yeah. My only argument against the corn fed silage fed animal, you know, mostly is that it doesn't make sense in the context again of historical, why would you have four stomachs? You have four stomachs to predominantly oh. consume grass at the ruminants. And I, I love the work Don Lehman discussed with the upcycling of the, uh, amino acids from the plants and the bacteria so that the animal then makes different amino acids for us. So there's got to be a reason behind it. There's got to be me. a reason. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm not arguing in favor of, right. of corn-fed animals. I mean, I, I, that's probably not optimal either. Um, right. It's just we're living in an industrial society where you can make a lot more money feeding in a feedlot than you can putting right. them out to pasture. <laughs> right, yeah. Agreed. But, but Agreed. it's not going to address your omega-6 or omega-3 problem. Right. Right. And I think that's the key take home point there, right? For folks who've always said, hey, I need to eat grass fed meat because of, I'm getting more omega-3. The answer is clearly it doesn't appear that's going to be clinically relevant. Full stop. Yeah, that is not the way to increase your omega-3. The way to Done. increase it is eat, eat some salmon. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Amen. All right. Perfect. Let's let's move on to some something else. So when we when we think about, you know, the omega-3 fats I want you to talk about your work, especially your Omega Quant. And then let's talk about the labs. Because again, you know, there's a lot of clinicians that follow this podcast. What is going on in the world of Omega-3 index, Omega ratios, and, and the fact that serum levels versus red blood cell levels, which again, I think red blood cell levels tend to be the best because you're getting a longer snapshot in time, you know, usually four months. So what, tell us the state of the science regarding testing. Okay. Um, so many, almost 20 years ago now, we, um, a, a colleague of mine and I decided, uh, based on new research studies, that uh, omega, that doctors ought to be measuring omega-3 blood levels because they mean something in the same sense that a blood sugar level means something and a blood cholesterol level means something. It has predictive power. It tells you you're going to be sick someday if you don't control this risk factor. So we call them risk factors. And we uh, came up with this thing called the omega-3 index. And the omega-3 index is the amount of EPA and DHA in your red blood cells. You had alluded to blood cells. And we, and we think that's the best way to measure your omega-3 status. And, and the analogy most doctors will understand is a hemoglobin A1C versus a serum glucose level. Right. Serum glucose is very noisy, day-to-day, hour-to-hour, but hemoglobin A1C is very steady, and it reflects the, the weighted average of your, your glucose status. In the same way, the omega-3 index measured in red blood cells reflects your weighted average over several, several weeks to months of omega-3. And so it's a good marker. And it's, we've, so we've used that in many, many research studies. Uh, we have originally proposed in 2004 that when the first paper came out on this, that an omega-3 index of 8% in 
meaning 8% of the fatty acids in the red cell membrane are EPA or DHA. Sum it up. And almost all of it is DHA, actually, in, in the red cell membrane. Um, that 8% to, we say 8% to 12% is about the, the target healthy value. Most Americans are down, only about 5% of Americans might be in that range. More studies, 95% are below that range. Uh, and we think it's uh, in the same sense that you want to get your cholesterol in a healthy range. You want to get your blood sugar in a healthy range. You, you want to get your omega-3 in a healthy range. So we developed this omega-3 index, use it in research, and then we developed, we, we started a laboratory called OmegaQuant here in, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And we uh, have been offering this test for now about 12 years to, to researchers uh, but to clinicians like yourself uh, and to consumers directly, they can order it now and it can be done on a dried blood spot. So a, a prick your finger at home, put a drop of blood on the card, drop it in the mail, and then you get a report three to five days after the sample gets to the lab. Um, and we'll tell you what your omega-3 index is. And if it's too low, the, the, the the way to fix it is very easy. It's very intuitive. Eat more EPA and DHA. <laughs> uh, it, it really couldn't be simpler. So what's the status of it? Um, you know, are the big labs doing it? Uh, well, Quest, LabCorp, and I think Quest does it for LabCorp, are, are doing a, a plasma-based omega-3 tests, um, which I think is a huge step forward from not doing anything. Anything. Which is what they used to do. So, uh, and for a variety of laboratory-based or you know throughput, insurance reimbursement, other factors, they choose to use plasma. Uh, and plasma omega-3 levels, although they're noisier within person over time, uh, in the aggregate, for, certainly from a research point of view, um, a higher plasma level in a group of a thousand people is going to be correlate with a high omega-3 in a red cell. So that's, that's, I don't get too excited about it. Um, so the test is available from some clinical laboratories, big ones. Uh, it's available from OmegaQuant as well, but we don't do any insurance. All is ours cash pay. Um, and it's actually cheaper than the copay you're going to have on the insurance <laughs> for a big lab to do it, uh, as it turns out. So uh, we, we've really been promoting the idea that someday, my dream, I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, is that in the same way that your annual physical includes a blood sugar check and a blood glucose check and, and a cholesterol check, it'll include an omega-3 test. Right. And your doctor will know that it, it, it's easier to control than sugar or it's easier to control than cholesterol. You don't need any drugs to do it. Right. It's nutritionally driven and it can be improved. You know, if a typical, how much omega-3 do you need to go from a bad level to a healthy level? In the neighborhood of a gram and a half, 1,500 milligrams a day, EPA, DHA, would make a huge dent in most people's um, effort to get to an omega-3 omega index of 8%. So yeah. th that's kind of where that's at. Yeah. And that's uh, interesting. You say 1,500. That tends to be the number that I choose for all my teenagers. No, really? Which is uh, 1,500 milligrams of EPA and DHA as barlenes is the one that they they like the taste of the most. And, oh, yeah. I mean, and, the, uh, and, the, the, the stuff, the squirt bottle, the, uh, yeah. uh, the, the flavored stuff, the emulsion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's great stuff. 
Yeah, it's the one. It's the one across the board that I can get these kids to take without without much hesitation. The only pushback I ever get in general is they just don't like the oily oily texture. Um, but flavor wise, rarely ever get any complaints about that. And and I think that's that's uh, you know compliance is the key. So if I get compliance, I'm happy because no yeah. compliance means no answer. So let's shift yeah. gears into. Um, if you feel comfortable talking about this, but pregnancy, you know, because again, I think of everything from prevention first, if we can get mom to prevent the outcome of the child to be less than optimal, what do we think about in the pregnancy state? And therefore, um, you know, like you state, it takes a while for the omega-3 value to drop. So the child is getting it through the breast milk afterwards. What do we know in that world? Well, let's just start with pregnant pregnancy, as you, as you say, um, the people have been uh, studying omega-3 in pregnancy primarily for brain development. I mean, because the, again, we mentioned there's so much DHA in the brain right. um, and there's uh, a, well, this is one thing about, well, that's, that's breast milk. We'll talk about that's post-birth. Um, anyway, the studies that have been looking at the effects of giving mom, pregnant mom, omega-3 uh, and looking at, birth outcomes there there it's kind of a mixed bag as to whether we're really seeing improved mental development there's some evidence for it for the kid uh it's tough to study yeah it's not a universal finding uh there's no damage done it's not, not hurting anything uh, but it's still a little bit the jury's out whether you're really improving the intellectual development of the child by taking dha during pregnancy um, I mean, there was a paper in New England Journal a few weeks ago that where they where they had given uh, premature babies, not mom, premature babies, DHA. And this is a pre 34 weeks. I might have been pre 29 weeks. I mean, really premature babies, DHA. Uh, and now this was seven, eight years ago. And now they measured IQ in these kids now that they're five. And they found there was a statistically significantly higher IQ in the kids that got DHA back then. That wasn't the point of the study originally. It had other reasons, but this is a convenient place to ask the question. Did that provision of DHA, which normally through the placenta, mom is giving, or actually the baby is sucking the DHA right. out of mom uh, to build the brain. And so premature kids are really at risk. Right. Um, so what has come out of many of these studies of giving uh, DHA to moms while they're pregnant is this sort of surprising effect of um, reducing risk for premature birth. And that has been shown in 70-some uh, trials. They've meta done a meta-analysis of all those studies, and they've concluded that, yeah, you get about a 15% about a reduction in risk for premature birth uh, if you're taking DHA, and that's before 37 weeks, and about a, a 30 or 40% reduced risk for premature birth if you're talking 34 weeks uh, uh, of gestation. So it, it's becoming quite clear that, uh, I mean, there's not a lot you can do. Of course, premature birth is a complicated thing. It isn't just one, it right. just be low in omega-3. Uh, right. But there's one thing you apparently can do. Um, I mean, it just it actually keeps the baby in the uterus longer. And, yep. and so one of the side effects is, you know, being uh, overdue. 
Uh, yeah, a couple of days, uh, but which is probably fine. Um, so that's in the omega-3 in pregnancy world, that's the what's the hot button now is what can we do to reduce prematurity uh, in, in those kids? Um, in terms of, of, of development for the baby, again, I, I think that's still, uh, I th think it's still important to give mom or give kids omega-3. As you alluded to, breast milk is the best way to go. And breast milk has more well, it used to. Uh, right. Now, now the formulas are supplementing with DHA and arachidonic acid many times, which is that's present in breast milk. Right. Uh, and when people think about breast milk being the perfect food, well, yes and no, uh, because if mom is not eating much omega three, there's not going to be much in her milk. It is not naturally. I mean, it's, it. it its levels come and go with her supplementation, how much she is eating. Right. Uh, so it's important for mom while she's lactating to be taking omega-3. I mean, we we have at Omega Quant, we have a, in the same way we have dried blood spot testing for omega-3, we have a dried milk spot testing for DHA. So mom can put a drop of her milk on a card and mail it in. And we can tell her how much DHA she has in her milk. And if she needs to get up, It'll if she starts supplementing the next day, the levels will start up. It's fast. Um, yeah. So I think it's important for pregnancy and lactation that mom is getting enough DHA in her diet. Um, and then uh, now you're in pediatricity, you're a pediatrician, so you're the kids and on. I I, I think they ought to have high omega threes from minus nine months. Till they're 90, you know, everybody right. needs higher omega-3. Right. Um, but it, it is challenging to get it into kids, especially in American culture where our taste buds just weren't growing up on that stuff. Yeah. And I think to your point on the taste, taste side, there's a very clear window of opportunity to get that in. And that's that, you know, that six to 18 month age is when these kids are most receptive to many different flavors and tastes. I mean, it's incredible when you watch a child, who is six months old drinking Alimentum, which is this hydrolyzed casein-based formula. It is the most disgusting thing I've ever put on my tongue. When we were in residency, we had to try all the different formulas. I, I couldn't fathom a child would drink this stuff. And until they've had exposure to all kinds of different foods, they're willing to taste a lot of stuff. But boy, once they're 18 months and they've had that happy peanut butter and jelly about five times, ooh, those Brussels sprouts are no longer as interesting. So you have to That's re- right you know, 18 times is the average number of exposures to a food for a child to actually accept it long-term. And so I think, you know, to your point, the earlier, the better, and the more, the more frequency, the better in order to get these kids to naturally consume. I mean, my wife is a nutritionist and my children from very young ages were eating salmon and fish at, at three, four times a week, actually. And it right. wasn't until kindergarten that my daughter refused to take salmon to school anymore and that wasn't because she didn't like it it was because of the kindergarten hazing <laughs> that was going on to the fact that she brought fish to school and she from that day on would not bring fish again and and so it's pretty fascinating reality oh, wow that's interesting there's a there's a dynamic you don't count on um but she liked she grew to like or very quickly developed a taste for fish and that maintains she still yes eats. she still eats salmon and, and and does like it some of the 
mackerel she does like but sardines no way you know yeah. i guess it, when it's too too fishy that you know they all throw, throw up their nose but yeah i understand that part yeah well i do have, so, have colleagues who were tell me that they start their kids on on sardines at you know six months yeah yeah you know? i interviewed a good friend of mine he's uh one of my former professors at uva when i was in residency there steve borowitz and we talked a lot about the effective timing of solid food introduction he tends to think now anthropologically that we should be starting between three and four months and we should be starting with real foods pretty early and not really worrying about this whole six month and on and then they have to be you know uh you know x texture because i mean if you think about it, historically a thousand years ago how was a child getting food well mom would do like what a bird's mom would do chew it up make it really fat and and if your main food source of protein that day was fish that you just caught out of the river makes a lot of sense to me again and i think evolutionarily humans have lived on very diverse diets depending on the climate or the location they found themselves in. So I don't think we're siloed to any one type of macro volume, but I think to your point, I think we need certain things essentially and omega-3 fatty acids is one of those things that I want everyone listening to this podcast to understand. This is one of the ones you want to get in your body daily, sort of like sunlight, you know, vitamin D yeah. clearly is made through the sun. So stop telling me the sun is a bad thing. I'm just done with that argument. Safe sun. That's what we need. Exactly right. Safe son. So if you're, you're born, your, your heritage was born in Ireland, you know, you might not want to be getting too much sun in North Carolina, which is Tripoli, Africa, right? The, the, the latitude. So you got to just take an understanding of where your, your polar bear in the desert scenario is. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot to be said there. So, you know, I I, sort of want to wrap this up. You've given an amazing amount of information to the listeners and, and specific details, but you know, this last paper you wrote nature communications, you know, 2021, you know, some meta-analysis. So just go through that last bit of that, the, the all cause mortality or total mortality. What was, what was this all about? Yeah, and I earlier described this group of, of researchers who study, we, we collectively study each of these um, different prospective cohorts of healthy people, right. fundamentally. Right. Um, and then we measure their blood levels of omega-3 at the beginning of the study, and then we just wait over right. decades to see who, usually what diseases people get. But in this particular study, we asked, did you die? Right. When they didn't ask them if they died, we asked the researchers who died. Uh, and we asked the question, was there a relationship between the level of omega-3 in the blood when we made, obviously when they were alive, um, and, and how soon they died after that? And it turned out that the higher the omega-3 level, the longer people lived. Right. So we just say the lower risk for premature death. Right. Uh, and that wasn't, and then we looked at, what we call cause-specific mortality. We There's total mortality, which is dead from anything. And then there's dead from heart disease. There's dead from cancer. And then there's dead from everything else. Um, we didn't want to get too picky. So it, we saw the same relationship with heart disease. The higher the omega-3, the lower the risk for death from heart disease. The higher the omega-3, the lower the risk for death from cancer. And the higher the omega-3, the lower the risk for death from anything else. And so was this linear or exponential? Linear. Linear. Just a yeah. Fascinating. Really nice step, stepwise reduction. Um, I mean, again, I, I think people need to be cautious about 
observational data. Okay. We didn't, this is not a study where we randomly assigned people to fish oil or not, and then followed them for 30 years. You can't do that study. It's too expensive. Right. Nobody's right. going to do it. Right. So there are, it, the typical criticism of this kind of study is that the people that have higher omega-3 levels maybe just live a healthier lifestyle. Right. It's not degrees. Fair enough. Frank. I mean, nothing's perfect. We, we, there is no perfect study design. No. Uh, but it's it, when you look at a problem, if you look at the effects of omega-3s in animal studies, in, in cell cultures, in petri dishes, in, in humans, where you actually can do a randomized study for two or three years, and these observations, and they all sing the same song, you begin yeah. to think there's something there. And that's why omega-3s are so popular. And you have plenty clear linear mechanistic reasoning, right? So when right. you look at the actual mechanisms, they're there. Right. It's one thing if we're taking a leap of faith, we've got A and we jump to Z, but we really have A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We're, we're walking the trail to yep. the point of, to of, so sort of the headwaters to the end. I, that's where I sort of go, okay, I, I think this is pretty clear. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And, and, and the other side, medically, of course, you always look at risk. You know, what's the right. downside? And not much. Right, Hardly right. So, Bill, I want to give you the last word, but I also want to, if people wanted to follow you, right, you have your website, clearly Omega Quant, uh, but what, do you have a Twitter handle? Do you do anything where you're posting information about this field and where people would, if they're interested in this, not really, yes, no? Uh, yeah, probably Omega Quant. So Omega and then Q-U-A-N-T.com. That's probably the best place to get. We do uh, podcasts and blogs and stuff like that um, at Omega Quant. Um, I know I personally don't do any of the social media stuff. Um, well, anyway, that's that's another story. I'm uh, there with you. I, I still yeah, haven't yeah. got on. <laughs> well, if anybody wants to email me, they can ask you. I'm happy to address uh, my email address is Bill at Omega Quant. That's awesome. Okay. So I'd be happy well. to I absolutely greatly appreciate this hour and change. It's been unbelievably informative. Your work is, you know, it just, it speaks for itself after many decades of doing the heavy lifting that allows us as clinicians, frankly, to do the work we need to do because without the bench researchers, the PhDs, clinicians don't have much to go with, right? And my biggest complaint has always been the amount of time it takes us to translate your research into clinically relevant decision-making is very frustrating. I think COVID thankfully helped a lot of that out. Now that we have met our XIV and these ways to get data to us quicker, we can make better decisions. Again, assuming there's a mechanistic path and a low downside, the sort of Hippocratic oath of doing no harm, but we need you guys doing the amazing research that you're doing. So I am very grateful you. for you and your time. Appreciate it. We all we all choose a path and sometimes it works out. And uh, you, you've done a great job too. I, I appreciate your work. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Harris. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time discussing the space of omega-3 fatty acid science with my original integrative medicine teachers, Dr. Weil, uh, Dr. Mazes, and Dr. Lodog. And since then, it just continues to get deeper and more interesting. And the science really seems to be telling us that this is a major macronutrient subtype, 
know, fats as the macro and the subtype being these specific omega-3 fatty acids towards, in general, human health, right? Especially when it comes to brain health. In Nature Communications in 2021, Dr. Harris wrote, you know, that in this meta-analysis utilizing a harmonized analytical strategy with individual level data from 17 different cohorts, you know, they examined the association between circulating levels of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids and mortality, death. And they found that after controlling for other risk factors, these long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, specifically of the omega-3 type, were associated with about a 15% lower risk of total mortality comparing the top and the bottom quintiles. And as we discussed in the podcast, there's more recent research that has revealed another mechanism that likely drives the health effects of omega-3 fatty acids, a large class of unique byproducts of omega-3 metabolism called special pro-resolving lipid mediators, or SPMs for short. Scientists have now identified four families in these SPM category, including these chemicals, resolvins, lipoxins, protectins, and maricins. And these remarkable molecules have the ability to reduce inflammation that drives many of the chronic diseases we talk about. They promote apoptosis or, or cellular program death. They regulate white blood cell activity. And they've also been known to reduce the production of pro-inflammatory mediators. You put all that together and, boy, that sounds like really good stuff for human health. And again, I think of that in the context of concussions, head injuries, you know, child's brain growth early neurodevelopmental stages, even pregnancy. I think all of this, these, these specific time periods make me want to look a little deeper into the research over time to see how much more are we going to learn with omega-3 fatty acids being needed in breast milk and formulas, early foods, right? There's a lot more to be said here, but the mechanism is starting to show that there's a reason behind the why. And then we got into a little bit of the how much do you need, and I tend to fall into this 1,500 milligrams of EPA and DHA combined for our average, you know, teenagers and older, and, you know, reflectively lower doses depending on the age of children in the earlier years of life. But either way, there is a lot to be said about the need because many children don't eat fish anymore, and they don't have a lot of sources of omega-3 fatty acids directly through their diet. Dr. Harris and his group you know, they, they noted that there was a need to understand blood level concentrations of omega-3 fatty acids in order to understand this correlation between omega-3 fatty acids and risk for cardiovascular disease or other chronic diseases of aging. And they identified a target omega-3 level dubbed the omega-3 index. And we use this as a way to measure a potential risk factor for some diseases over time, especially cardiovascular disease, based on what this index looks like compared to normatives. And we think this is a great idea in order to test your patients or yourself as a way of understanding where are they on the spectrum of having adequate amounts of DHA and EPA in the system for immune and neurologic function. And how does this all play out in special pro-resolving lipid mediators and all the other things we discussed in the podcast. So having an omega-3 index will give us a way of looking at it over time Red blood cell analysis of omega-3 fats, like uh, hemoglobin A1C, would tell us what our blood glucose concentration is in the serum over time. So for me, this sounds like a great way to start thinking future-wise about our collective health. Can we, as a 
country start to look more at analytics like we do on blood sugar with A1Cs in patients? Should we start doing omega-3 indexes on kids? I think the answer is yes. And I think the answer is yes as far as getting folks to eat more fish as a dietary influence. And if they don't, as discussed in the podcast, then you have to be really careful about where you're getting your omega-3 fats from. And especially making sure you may have, you know, the potential for not getting overloaded on the omega-6 size. I know that's still up for debate, but I tend to think things in balance make more sense to me. So if you don't have enough omega-3s and you're getting a ton of omega-6s, maybe you are starting to shift the system into a pro-inflammatory state. Mechanistically, it makes sense to me. But this is time. We'll see. There's a lot of debate still about that. Either way, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this whole podcast. I appreciate Dr. Harris, as always, for his great insights and his research over the years. And as always, hug those kids. If you like this podcast, I would love to see you go over to Apple Podcasts and rate it. Tell me what you think. It gives me great data points to help me understand if I'm in the right direction, wrong direction, or whatever I need to help you, the listener, learn and move on in this world in a more healthful and positive way. So, as always, thank you so much for your time. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or the healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat any health issue. The podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.